Welcome to First State Insights, offering information, perspectives, and analysis for public policy, management, and community and economic development in Delaware. Hi, everyone, and welcome to First State Insights, a podcast presented by the Institute for Public Administration. My name is Troy Mix, and I'm Associate Director at the Institute, which is a research and public service center in the University of Delaware's Biden School of Public Policy and Administration. We call ourselves IPA for short. Thanks for tuning in today. On today's episode, we're joined by Joe Kane, who is a Senior Research Associate and Associate Fellow at the Brookings Institution's Metropolitan Policy Program. Joe's work focuses on issues of the built environment, including transportation and water infrastructure. We spoke on June 4th, 2020, about research he and colleagues have been conducting on the nation's infrastructure workforce. We also compared notes on an effort by my IPA colleagues and I to study Delaware's infrastructure workforce development needs and opportunities. Let's get to the conversation. So, Joe, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Troy. I wanted to talk a little bit about Brookings' work on infrastructure, and maybe you could just start by kind of telling me why Brookings has been focused on infrastructure workforce for the last few years. Yeah. Um, so, you know, Brookings, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, is a 100-year-old uh, think tank based in, in Washington, focusing on a whole bunch of different uh, research topics, uh, in particular on economic development topics. Um, I focus a lot on uh, state and local economic development. So, for example, as, as places of Delaware are thinking about these issues, certainly, certainly that's top of mind. But looking at the intersection between economic development and the built environment or infrastructure uh, more generally. And so by background, you know, I'm an economist uh, and a planner. And so thinking of our infrastructure investments, not just in terms of, of physical transportation upgrades, uh, water infrastructure upgrades, energy upgrades, broadband, um, etc., but, but really looking at um, how infrastructure can serve as a foundation for economic growth and opportunity at a state and local level and then ultimately at a national level is, is of huge importance. And of course, you know, it takes a lot of people, uh, not just, just things, um, to operate um, all of our infrastructure. And so uh, traditionally, you know, especially in Washington anyway, uh, and when we think of infrastructure, and workers, it's usually just in terms of jobs or, or shovel-ready jobs. Um, this was a, a big point um, during the last recession um, with the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act of, of looking at shovel-ready jobs and projects, um, infrastructure going back to the, to the New Deal and the Great Depression, looking at sort of the stimulus effects of infrastructure on jobs. So infrastructure has been a big part of, of the labor market conversation in general, but but I think um, Brookings' interest and, and my interest specifically was really trying to peel back some of the layers on infrastructure and, and, and really workforce, not just jobs, but workforce. And so trying to pay particular attention to the types of workers who are filling these jobs, um, the, the specific career pathways that, that are available in this space, and then all sorts of, of, of characteristics um, that are important to bear in mind when it comes to wages, training, education, retention, um, that are just so important, not just um, in the infrastructure sector, if you will, but, but really for our economy at the moment of, of how are we connecting 
students and other prospective workers to to economic opportunities. And I think infrastructure can be can be a big part of that. So when you talk about infrastructure, I mean, I know we do infrastructure work that's funded by our Department of Transportation, for example, in Delaware. Uh, and we do focus mostly on transportation, but you mentioned a lot of different topic areas. Do you find kind of wide support for thinking of infrastructure that way? Or is that a novel part of what you're doing? I'd say it's, it's, it's more novel in that, you know, even the employers themselves in this space may not see them themselves as, as infrastructure employers as much as I am a transportation employer or I'm a warehouse. I'm a logistics or distributor. I'm a, a water utility. Um, they often don't see themselves as part of, of the infrastructure super sector. So in that sense, the, the work that I've been leading uh, at Brookings has been somewhat unique in, in trying to look across these different infrastructure silos, infrastructure just overall, not just with workforce, but <laughs> with planning, policy, investment is, is very siloed. Um, often transportation people talk to other transportation people. Rarely do they talk to, to water infrastructure people to say nothing of energy or broadband. Um, and so I think part of part of the motivation here was yes, to, to both acknowledge and provide actionable information to to employers and, and policymakers who are interested in, for example, transportation specifically, but to also look at opportunities for greater shared learning and best practices that that can be common across all of these sectors where at least based on some of the research that, that we've done, you know, the skill sets among some of these workers can be very similar, whether you're working for, for a transit agency versus a water utility, for example. There's a, there's a lot of similar hard skills, um, on the job training, uh, required. And so thinking across these sectors, I think is, is, is a value add. But of course, there are individual needs that need to be considered too. Um, specific to each sector, with with transportation, of course, being one of the biggest. So thinking about our research right now is looking uh, mostly at public sector, and we're looking at local governments. Where do local governments and maybe the public sector more generally fit in when you talk about infrastructure employment? Are they a big part of it, small part of it, focused on one area? They're they're a big part of it. Um, I guess in, in terms of the... Unfortunately, there are limitations in the data that allow us to see, and when I say data, really the labor market data that, that we use from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and other federal agencies, it can be hard to isolate local government employment here from, from other types of employers in this space. But without any doubt, most of our infrastructure is owned and operated <laughs> by local governments. And, and state governments are, of course, a big, big player in this too. And so naturally, they are uh, big employers um, in this space, and and so uh, you know, according to our calculations, you know, there are more than 17 million infrastructure workers across the country. It's about 11 uh, percent of the total U.S. workforce. So more than one out of every 10 workers are employed in this space. So you know, they they, they are all over the country. Um, they are not geographically isolated. We're not talking about you know Silicon Valley of of everyone happens to be in a tech firm in one place, but you know, when you think of truck drivers, you think of, of water treatment operators, you think of, you know, electricians. These workers are all over the country. They're employed in, in a variety of different businesses and, and establishments, but, but local government for sure is, is a lead player uh, in this space. 
So you talked about characteristics a little bit of these workers. And one of the things you mentioned was kind of wages. Can you talk a little bit about how the wages compare in the infrastructure sector versus other sectors with maybe similar preparation? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, you could point to when we think of the what are the economic benefits of thinking about not just infrastructure investment broadly, but but infrastructure workers um, specifically. It's not just the the, the huge number uh, and variety of jobs in this space. Um, we have anyone from engineers to to uh, packers and packagers and logisticians. Um, there, there's a huge range of occupations in this space, but but the the wage advantage or or the pay can be very competitive um, for these positions. And and what I like to point to is the equitable pay. And so from from our work. Uh, we found that wages for those workers, those infrastructure workers who are really just starting out their careers, who are kind of on the bottom rungs of their career ladder, they're earning up to 30% more uh, in these positions than they would in, in other jobs across the whole economy. So when we think of, of you know, even before the coronavirus and, and the current economic situation that we're in right now, you know, following the Great Recession ten years ago, continued concerns over connecting people not just to, to jobs but but to durable uh, career pathways that that provide you know living wages <laughs> and benefits um, is hugely important. And so, to the extent that that infrastructure provides that outlet and again that foundation for growth and opportunity for more types of workers, um, not just very educated workers, but but perhaps workers who may only have a high school diploma or less, is a big value add, I think, for, for infrastructure. So another characteristic I think you alluded to was kind of skill sets. And I'll just say that you showed up in Delaware uh, when you came, were nice enough to come to the Del- Delmarva Freight meeting a couple of years ago. And I think the the reason we were interested in your work was that there was a lot of talk about automated vehicles in the trucking industry and kind of even more talk about just technology impacting that freight and logistics space. So it's not just kind of digging ditches and the job always looks the same. Uh, you know, what are some of the emerging, you know, skill needs and technology kind of impacts on this sector overall and maybe some specific examples you can think about? Yeah, I mean, so uh, first off, I would just say that only about 12% of, of infrastructure workers, in, in, according to our estimates, have a bachelor's degree or higher. But 80% have some level of short to long term on the job training. So when we think of the skills required for these jobs, um, it's often not you know just going to sit in a classroom somewhere and getting an advanced degree or even a four-year degree. Um, many, many of these workers gain their, their experience and their expertise on the job. And so work-based learning, uh, career and technical education, employer engagement, these are all big considerations um, when, when thinking about the, the training and skill needs for, for not just, just younger workers who may be thinking of careers in this space, but even middle-aged workers who may be needing retraining and other workers who are just looking to, to improve their, their existing skill sets or, or gain new competencies. 
they have to often do it on the job. And, and we know in the infrastructure space, like many parts of the economy at the moment, the, the future of work <laughs> is kind of here in some ways. Um, we're, not, we're not operating in a vacuum. And so the need for uh, uh, adaptability, both in, in hard uh, skills, but also soft skills is important. Um, and, and so what do I mean by that? So like hard skills, meaning, you know, familiarity with a variety of tools and technologies to even do the job that, that, um, you're hired for. <laughs> and so in, you know, in transportation, let's say you're a truck driver, one of the biggest uh, occupations here nationally in general, but, but specifically in the infrastructure space, you not only need to know how to drive your truck, <laughs> have a certification for that. Um, but, but you know, you may have to be knowledgeable in repairing that truck, uh, making certain deliveries. We know that there's a new uh, mobility to to how we deliver goods and to how uh, our transportation networks are even working. To say nothing of the changing technology itself, of uh, if we're to have, uh, as you just said, Troy, you know, automated vehicles here, you know, that's that's something to consider. Uh, you know, not just in the transportation sector, but in 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 the water sector, which I've also looked at water treatment facilities, obviously hugely important for public health, especially right now uh, during the coronavirus, making sure those facilities are are not just uh, doing the service that they've always done, but but providing improved efficiency, resilience to to a you know a changing climate, everything else is hugely important. So having Workers who understand the importance of, of green infrastructure upgrades, other, other new technologies that might be available in that space is, is important. So we've seen this playing out in, in a bunch of different ways across the country. You know, Michigan and Ohio, for example, huge centers traditionally for auto manufacturing <laughs> and just transportation in general. Um, and so they've been thinking of, of some of these uh, AV workforce issues, if you will in partnership with community colleges, um, other employers in the area. So really not just sort of, you know, sitting on their hands and, and letting the technology come to them, but really actively trying to reach out to workers and other stakeholders and employers here um, to think about what are the skills of the future that are going to be needed. Um, how do we adapt to that now? And it's it's an ongoing, it's an ongoing exercise. Yeah. So you mentioned that a lot of these jobs require on the job training, maybe certifications short of a formal degree. Um, and we, we surveyed local governments in Delaware and found that they were, you know, thinking about those things and also that it was challenging to hire infrastructure employees and retain them uh, and develop them. What are kind of some of the reasons we haven't delved into the reasons why that's true, but thinking about it nationally, what are some of the reasons why you think those things are challenging? And then where have you seen kind of promising approaches to, to make it less challenging for, for locals, but anyone in this sector? Yeah, there, there are a lot of, um, <laughs> a lot of factors bundled into that. I, I would say, you know, some of this is to be honest with you, uh, just the lack of visibility. For careers in this space, uh, I'm not just talking about you know infrastructure careers. I'm talking about I don't even know if there's a job in transportation. Uh, I didn't know that there's what what is a water job, <laughs> what is an energy job. Um, these aren't necessarily intuitive or well broadcasted to younger, not just to younger workers, but to students um, as they begin to 
to plot out their future education and, and potential careers. And so there has been, I think, a longstanding failure or inability on the part of not just one person here, but, but all employers, you know, workforce development folks, policymakers, probably researchers to really getting the word out there that, hey, <laughs> there are a lot of jobs here that, that need to be filled. And, and so one thing I didn't mention earlier is, you know, the huge replacement needs, more than 3 million jobs or more than a quarter of all these jobs are, are going to have to be filled because of retirements and the eligibility for retirement. A lot of these workers in these positions right now are, are older. And so they're going to need replacements. And, and collectively speaking, um, there's going to be a need to fill positions, not just because of growth, but, but to just fill the gaps that, that we're seeing emerging in this space. And, and, and many of these positions, you might think, well, all right, you don't need a bachelor's degree per se. But that doesn't mean they aren't incredibly skilled positions. There's often a need for years of, of on-the-job training to get that familiarity and competency with, with what's really needed in these roles. And that takes time. That takes uh, mentorships, for example, between um, older workers and younger workers, creating those common connections and, and channels of communication so that younger workers especially feel engaged in this sector. So that's one big part of it is, is visibility and just simply getting the word out there that there's this gap to fill. And we just haven't been doing a really good job at, at doing that. Um, the, other, the other side I'd point to is, is the lack of, of flexibility in helping some of these younger workers, but also just disconnected workers in general from, from filling these positions. And, and so what do I mean by that? Well, you know, apprenticeships, for example, or the need for work-based learning is crucial for, for many of these positions. Um, but <laughs> in order to qualify for those apprenticeships or, or even to, to qualify for an entry-level opportunity, that might be posted on a government website, for example, you need one to two years of experience. Um, you know, you can't just simply just walk on board usually. And, and this is true in other sectors, obviously, in the economy too. But I think it's especially true in the infrastructure sector, just given the need for on-the-job training. And so how can places create those bridge opportunities, pre-apprenticeship opportunities, internship opportunities to expose more um, workers or prospective workers to opportunities in this space. And, and so that's, that's been a challenge because that takes money usually to create some of those programs and those opportunities. Um, it takes a lot of, of coordination, not just among employers, but, but of course with, with our community college system in many, many cases with our workforce development boards who, who may be focusing in, in a good way on, on STEM education and, manufacturing and, and other types of positions in our economy, but maybe not explicitly focusing quite as much on, on just transportation or infrastructure as its own distinct sector. And so there's, there's a need for, um, for engagement here, for employers to be, be more active, I think, in outreach and communication to prospective workers, not just relying on the same you know, friends and family and you know, passing of word of mouth <laughs> that there's a job open. Um, but actually reaching out to communities and, and working with some of these regional and state level stakeholders to, mm -hmm. to elevate the opportunity. Yeah. So not to put you on the spot too much in talking about Delaware, but, you know, Delaware, most of Delaware's local governments are quite small, like kind of under 2000, uh, residents. 
and there's 57 towns in, in Delaware. Uh, again, most of them quite small. What kind of promising approaches would you think about when you think about doing that coordination and not doing it all alone? Because I expect that might be challenging to do that if you're a town of 2,500, let's say. No, it's hugely important point um, that there's a certain scale, a different scale to this, um, and a, honestly, a fragmentation to it all across the country. So while I might say, well, you know, California is doing some really <laughs> interesting stuff around around uh, workforce development. You know, when you think of Delaware, it's like, all right, well, how does that how does that apply to me? Because you know, Delaware isn't entirely urban. Um, it also isn't entirely rural, although it is has a lot of local smaller communities, as you just pointed out. So scale is is enormously important here of creating um, translatable uh, lessons and best practices that ideally can be replicated um, across both larger urban areas, but also smaller rural areas. Um, and, and so there's going to be a need for targeted, you know, nuanced solutions and conversations here. I mean, I will say, just as one example, you know, the the water space, especially, there are more than 50,000 water utilities across the country. Um, Many of those are rural, you can count on one hand, how many employees those utilities have. Um, So there's huge uh, challenges in not just investment and operations. But but if you have, let's say, two workers who are going to be ready to retire in the next few years, and you have five total employees, that's 40% of your workforce could be walking off the job in the next few years, which has huge ramifications um, for, for the for the long-term viability of that system plus plus the workforce in that in that community. And so creating and well, first acknowledging that, right, is important. But then I think, you know, what 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 I've seen among especially some of these smaller systems and smaller communities is looking to their neighbors, um, trying to build the economies of scale where they can, where they, they shouldn't feel like they're in this alone, right? Like, I mean, it shouldn't be like, yep, our jurisdictional boundaries end here. These are our system-specific concerns. Like, we're only going to be thinking right here. I, I think a lot of infrastructure employers, for, for lack of a better word, are very traditional, which, which can... I, I don't mean that as, as a negative, but, but it can be a negative sometimes where... You know, a lot of infrastructure employers don't like to attract unnecessary attention. They just kind of want to go about their business, provide services, um, especially in the water space, don't want to attract unnecessary attention from regulators. But, but at the same time, there's this idea that, that I like to say of, you know, infrastructure employers are, are economic anchors for their communities in many ways. They're anchor institutions that we don't even really recognize. And I think in some ways they, they themselves may not recognize them, uh, themselves as, as, as anchors. And so, how can how can these employers, but also local governments and communities, band together to look at their shared advantages and and hopefully expand that net of, of capturing more prospective workers, um, perhaps reaching larger state level right educational and workforce development efforts? So really, a sharing and pooling of resources, I think, is important and. And I want to be clear, you know, this does take time. <laughs> it can take money. But it shouldn't. That shouldn't be a you know a barrier to to even having opening conversations on what should we do here, what are our priorities, where are our needs. That only takes meeting, you know, or a phone call, or or our current age a video chat, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, doesn't take too much money, but but you need to get the wheels starting somewhere. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, we're lucky in Delaware that those neighbor relationships exist between local governments, I know. And, you know, to your point about visibility, I think one thing we're trying to do and one thing we were impressed by Brookings work was the visibility on this sector. So we're hoping this is a first start to thinking about how local governments and state government too can band together and see this as a workforce priority and not kind of be crowded out uh, when we think about STEM and other other focus areas for workforce development. You know, we're obviously living through a time that's a lot more remarkable than we were just a year, to, a couple months ago, a year ago, however you want to phrase it. How has COVID-19 really uh, impacted how Brookings or you personally look at infrastructure employment and, you know, critical essential workers? So, I mean, obviously, there we're in a, a very uncertain moment. A lot of us just don't even understand the extent or the depths of, of what the coronavirus means economically. Um, have we reached the bottom? <laughs> to what extent is there going to be a, a short-term or a long-term recovery? There, there's a lot of, lot of questions, um, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, and, and we don't, quite frankly, even have... Uh, I, I often think of where's the data where are the measures to begin tracking what's what's happening here? And, and we simply don't have a lot of that information. So I'll just say that right off the top is there's just a lot of uncertainty here. So it's hard to make clear calls of, of what may or may not happen. Um, for, for infrastructure workers specifically, though, I, I do think there has been uh, additional attention and, and talk about visibility for essential workers and, and, and frontline workers. And, and I would include... Um, infrastructure workers certainly in that category where while some folks have been able to to work from home, whether you're in a transportation you know facility or a warehouse, you're in distribution and management, uh, you're in a port facility, you are operating your local energy or water utility, you are working for your local telecom <laughs> to make sure we have all the internet that we need to actually operate. Um, that requires a lot of workers who are uh, essential and, and in, in particular on the front line of keeping everything moving. And so while that has, I don't think, necessarily fundamentally changed the nature of that work, I think there's a greater realization and acknowledgement, broadly speaking, that, hey, these workers exist. <laughs> the work that they're carrying out is, is essential to keep us all really operating every day. And so the question is, I think in, in the short term, you know, how are those workers protected so that they can keep doing the work that they need to do? Uh, I think there's, there's questions over, over the, um, you know, whether additional insurance, additional, uh, leave time, additional, uh, hazard pay. These are all topics that have come up, not just in, in, in Washington, but, but all across the country at the moment. Some local governments, I know Atlanta. Uh, one of them actually uh, raised the pay as part of their civil works um, department to help protect some of these workers. So there's there's this short term sort of part of it, um, protective you know PPE, um, make sure that these workers have the equipment they need. So there's a short term part of this, but but I also don't like to overlook the um, the long term. You know, all right, well if these workers are so essential and we have you know we had these hiring needs even before the coronavirus hit. How can, how can infrastructure, particularly in, in an employment sense, power our recovery um, moving forward? 
And so, you know, the fact is we're, we're in the depths of, uh, you want to call it a recession or not, but, but, you know, up to, you know, 40 million workers have <laughs> filed for unemployment, you know, more than one out of every four workers nationally, a huge, huge total. You know, many of these workers are lower income, lower wage. Many of them, demographically speaking, represent a diversity uh, of people that have been, been hit very hard in this. Um, and so there's, there's an opportunity, I think, in, in some ways, kind of like, you know, following the Great Depression, when we had the, the, you know, Civilian Conservation Corps, the, the Works Progress Administration, you know, the New Deal, really the, we're still realizing the benefits of that today of, of all the different projects that we're still infrastructure that we're still using, but that created a, a springboard for, for millions of workers back then. Um, and so I think there's questions now of can, can we connect more, um, people, particularly disconnected people in our workforce, um, to these types of opportunities. So I, I think infrastructure needs to be a part of that conversation. Um, not just at a federal level, but probably at a state and local level too. But, you know, it's still very early days. Sure. There are a lot of, um, obviously competing priorities in terms of public health, uh, unemployment insurance, generally speaking, you know, economic assistance, even for state and local governments who are facing huge revenue shortfalls and, and balanced budget requirements. So. I mean, infrastructure has to figure into this equation, but it's probably not going to be item number one. <laughs> sure. But but it probably should be an item to consider. Yeah. So thinking of I mean, it's very uncertain, but thinking about infrastructure might have some role in recovery could be pretty sizable role. But what would you think? You know, based on the work you've done around workforce, particularly, would be ways that states and locals can really put their best foot forward and be prepared for those opportunities. Right. I, again, I don't think too much of this has fundamentally changed uh, with coronavirus. Of course, you know, ensuring there are protections, you know, that how does social distancing work <laughs> in some of these settings? I, you know, that I'm honestly, I'm asking even some people in this space what they're dealing with because we don't, we don't even know how that how that works. Although I will say that that some of these employers had you know emergency response plans in place before this hit. So in some ways, they kind of we're able to maneuver this situation a little bit better than your local grocery store, for example, which kind of was just doing it on the fly. In the case of, of some utilities, you know, they actually had workers, you know, live <laughs> and in apartments actually next to the utility. Um, they didn't, didn't even leave. You know, that's, that was part of the emergency response plan before the pandemic really even, even hit. So, so some of these employers actually have been, have been better positioned. Of course, then you see stories of Amazon and, and large warehouses where these workers are are not protected really adequately enough. So so there's a huge range of of different circumstances in the workplace here. But but in terms of of beyond sort of these these protection measures, what can uh, states and localities do to to really both protect but invest in in these these infrastructure workers as they support us and and our communities? Um, you know, I think I, I do look towards the the training pathways. So this is probably more of a of a moderate to longer term um, effort, but uh, again, apprenticeships, pre-apprenticeships, training efforts—you know what are going to be those bridge opportunities? People are looking for work; they need to find opportunities, and and time is important. You know, stimulus stimulus checks are are a band aid, but they're a band aid on a gunshot wound, right? Like, I mean, they're not 
they're not going to solve the the true problem that we're facing. And so we really need to <laughs> connect people to opportunities and have them have a better understanding that the opportunities are there. So uh, you know, and I'll say as as, as I mean, it's easy to say, well, having more funding for apprenticeships <laughs> or pre-apprenticeships would be a good place to start. Like, yeah, that's probably a no-brainer. Um, you know, and you think of the the trillions of dollars that um, the federal government, at least, has already dumped into recovery or or assistance efforts. Um, you know, for apprenticeships, we're talking, you know, millions to billions. So it's like a very small slice <laughs> of the funding pie here that could really have huge ripple effects. I think, or or again, get the as I said before, get the wheels going to helping build that capacity. At a state and local level, I think ultimately, because so many of these jobs are in facilities owned and operated by states and localities, you know, so much of this is going to start from the bottom up. I mean, it, you know, the, the reality is that Washington doesn't know <laughs> uh, what the circumstances are in every community across the country with these jobs. So, so the onus is really going to be on the shoulders of state and local governments who are facing pressures from all sides at the moment. So you just you just have to hope that you know if, if infrastructure investment, which I, I would argue should be a part of what we're doing anyway, <laughs> regardless of, of coronavirus, but but as part of a recovery, you know the workforce side of this becomes a, a key a key cornerstone. So, is there anything we should look for from Brookings on, on these topics over the next few months? Yeah, so um, we already have. Troy, the, um, which you may have seen and maybe some people listening have seen, but we did have a report on just sort of who are essential workers, uh, generally. There's been a lot of, a lot of media <laughs> stories on, on who are essential workers. We've seen a lot of reporting just on, you know, who are in the hospitals, who are in our grocery stores, sort of those very visible positions. But, but often we forget about, you know the bus drivers, the um, the warehouse workers, the utility workers, who are really an economic backbone for our communities. And so, part of our goal through through that particular report was to just measure how many of these essential workers there are, and then the characteristics of these workers at an individual level. And and what we found was that there are tens of millions uh, of essential workers. This is based off of the Department of Homeland Security had their own definition of what is essential or not. So we really tried to be very specific in terms of particular industries, occupations in this space, um, looking at there are 50 million plus <laughs> uh, essential workers across the country. Many of these workers, though, are uh, may not earn the highest of wages. And so there is a definite, in addition to sort of the health risks, that being on the front line, there is definitely an economic vulnerability too. Um, for these workers, if they don't have those adequate protections, so that's one piece that that we've done. Um, we're actually doing in another another week or so, so we're in early June here. Uh, we're going to be doing a a follow up piece to that, looking very specifically not just at all essential workers, but but frontline workers specifically. So that segment of our essential workforce that really has to report to their jobs, right? Because <laughs> You know, there are essential workers who can still kind of work remotely from home and, and at least according to the Department of Homeland Security definitions. And, and so we really want to focus on, um, you know, who are those workers who have to really show up to their jobs right now? Uh, again, what, what are their wages? What, um, what are their levels of education that, that are needed for these positions? Um, 
what's the racial composition of these workers. Many of these workers tend to be uh, Black and Hispanic workers who we know have been, they and their families have been hit very hard um, during the coronavirus. So, so that's obviously a huge importance. So, and the reason I think it's important to focus and really zoom in on, on the most vulnerable sort of frontline workers who are exposed to these health risks and these, these economic risks is we need to be targeted in our solutions. Um, you know, we can't, at least right now in Congress, you know, a lot of conversations on, on heroes pay and, and helping essential workers and all essential workers, of course, should all workers period should, <laughs> should have greater security during this moment and, and additional support if, if possible. But, but it's really, you know, if we're to be targeted and intentional, um, we need to have a better understanding of, of, of who are, um, the most vulnerable. Um, how do we begin to prioritize their needs? And so that's, that's part of the motivation of this piece. So those, those two pieces get very specifically at this essential and, and frontline worker conversation, which connects to, to infrastructure workers. Um, and then thinking of, of, um, you know, not to overlook it, uh, climate and environmental issues here too. I mean, we're, we're still in the midst of that crisis, I would argue. <laughs> And, and so in that we're in the middle of a pandemic at the moment doesn't change the fact that we're in the middle of a, of a climate crisis. And so looking at how, you know, we think of recovery, looking at how workers can be part of that, that climate conversation. We're entering hurricane season right now. So that should be top of mind as well. So those are a few pieces that, that we're thinking about. So we're, we're keeping, we're keeping busy, Troy. Joe, so thanks so much for joining us today, helping us to understand kind of workforce issues and opportunities around infrastructure as we think through what we're going to do in Delaware. We really look forward to having you visiting Delaware when that that all makes sense. But thanks again for joining us today. Thanks, Troy. I really appreciate it. As a reminder to listeners, this episode was recorded on June 4th, 2020. To learn more about the work of Joe and his colleagues at Brookings, visit brookings.edu or consult the show notes for links to recent reports relevant to the infrastructure workforce. That's all we have for this episode. I'm Troy Mix from the University of Delaware, IPA. To learn more about IPA, you can visit us at bidenschool.udel.edu slash IPA. Thank you for tuning in today. I hope you'll join us again soon for more First State Insights.